Cast. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, listeners, hello and welcome to this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I've got a great guest for you. She was um, she was guest back in episode 134, back when we were called the Burden of Command Podcast, and her name is Tevis Trower. Tevis, thanks for being a uh, guest on the Responsible Leadership Podcast this time. I'm so glad to talk to you again, Earl. Ah, man, I cannot wait until we have this conversation. I uh, kind of know where it's going here based off our uh, our pre-recording uh, chat, but I do want to get your answer to this question because you answered the burden of command question. I'm curious, uh, when you hear the term responsible leadership, what does that mean to you? God, it's such, um, it's such a complex word, right? Responsibility, because... You've got the word respond, right? That's that's um, kind of central to it. And then you've got the word able, right? And mm-hmm. what what really plays on my mind when I think about that is that so much of being a leader is transcending that urge to react, right? Which is there is something extrinsic happening around us and our immediate um, impulse is usually fear-based. And how do I control this, right? How do I control this? How do I sort this? How do I manage this, right? And what I think is really beautiful about the word responsible is that, that it conveys how do you act from a center place, right? How do you move into whatever you're dealing with from a place of clarity and centeredness? Reacting does not necessarily involve that. So, so I really love that you're pulling out the responsibility the responsibility, right, of mm-hmm. what it is to lead. And that is, do I stay clear and centered and able to address what's going on around us? And I think that that's, that's um, just such a great launch pad for what every freaking leader, probably every human being on the planet is confronting right now, if they're paying attention at all t- to what's happening around us. So so it, it's really a beautiful phrase i don't know if i answered that okay did that did that check the box for you earl (laughs) yeah no that was great it was a great perspective and i I really appreciated it and uh you know you're 100 percent correct with everything going on um i mean the last two years has just been kind of crazy for everybody but um kind of on that note you know, yes. we were supposed to record, <laughs> I want to say back in January, something like that. And and you needed to, to delay for some reasons we're getting ready to talk about here. Um, but, you know, so much has just happened since the last time we talked. You know, we've, we've still had COVID. We've, we've got everything going on in the Ukraine. We've got everything going on worldwide. And, you know, I mentioned to you about the, the big Walmart fire here by me. Uh, but you kind of had your own little incident that happened there, didn't you? Absolutely. Well, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything because I don't think that's what leaders do, right? Right. right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I live in a very small um, town in upstate New York, and um, one evening, um, my dog, who's elderly and barely ever barks anymore, started barking her head off. And um, I was like, what is going on? And then I thought, well, it's fall, right? It was late October. And I thought, well, maybe the bears, maybe the coyotes, maybe she's smelling something. And um, so I didn't really think anything about it. You, you know, I hopped in the 
bath before I went to bed and I you know, puttered around the way you do putting your house in order so you um, wake up to a nice orderly space. And at one point, um, I was taking her out to go to the bathroom and I swept through the mudroom, right? Everyone's got a mudroom up here because there's a lot of mud in the wintertime. Right. And um, I noticed the back door to my mudroom was open and that... Um, that it's never open and i kind of stopped which is a miracle because usually i sweep through there like i'm you know a house on fire just to get the dog out to go to the bathroom and um i paused and i looked at the door and it's always locked and it's got a strong drag and um I store um, some boots right alongside the door, and I noticed the boots were spilled in its path, in the door's path. Okay. So I knew instantly that this was not an animal, right? That this had been a human being. It wasn't the wind. It would have had to be a torrential hurricane, which doesn't happen in the mountains, right? right. For um, a wind to blow open that way. But, um, but, so I stood there for a moment and I just contemplated like, like what, what is really happening here? Right. And I got really still. And I remember I was leaning against the door frame of my, um, of my kitchen door and noticed that, that some of my dirty clothes had been pulled out of the washer, which is kind of gross. Hmm. And um, just realized, you know, someone has been in my space while I'm home. And hmm. trying to compute that, right? Trying to compute, like, what does that mean? So I um, locked everything up, obviously. I took the dog out out front, had her dear business, came in, locked up the house, set the alarms, you know, everything. And only then did it really occur to me to call the police, right? So I call the police, they come, they look around, they can't find anything. And I I asked them what I should do. And they said, well, you need cameras, you need floodlights, you need everything to light up your house. And um, they, they, they completely believed me, which was nice. Right. Right. Um, But, but one of the things that really struck me is when I thought to call them, they told me to lock myself in my bedroom. Now guys, I really want you to think about this male or female, no matter who you are on this planet, when a police dispatcher tells you to lock yourself in your bedroom for your own safety, until the police get there. It's a scary feeling, right? And so I did, but anyway, they come, they look at everything, blah, blah, blah. And um, they tell me to get a gun, they tell me to get a bigger dog, right? They tell me everything. And um, so of course I didn't sleep well. And in the morning I got up and I called a friend and made plans. Um, They came and installed a bunch of cameras all over the house within a day. and lo and behold, four days later, um, I'm at home on a Friday night um, watching The Crown and drinking some ginger tea because that's what a rock star I really am. And um, <laughs> one of my alarms go off. And it, it was a naked 24-year-old boy I have never met. I have no connection to trying to break into my home. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And the reason I'm giving you guys this graphic detail point by point by point by point is that this is the fabric of our lives, right? These are things that could be happening to your employees. Like I heard a statistic that four out of 10 women experience domestic abuse, Yeah. right? This is the fabric of her life. And these people are walking in and out of our companies every day. And what about ourselves, right? Because women are not just employees, they are also leaders, right? Mm-hmm. So so the reason I'm really underscoring this is I think that, that, um, that when we look at the conversation happening right now around empathetic leadership, right? Around compassionate leadership, around conscious leadership, and everyone's throwing around these words and we all nod our heads and we go, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. 
Yes, I want to be a human leader. Yes, I want my people to feel like they can talk to me. Oh, but they won't open up to me. Well, guess what? It's kind of a funny thing. It's kind of like running into the woods and trying to see a wild animal and screaming, where are you, wild animal? Where are you? Right. Yeah. <laughs> not, not realizing that, that you're scared of away, right? Exactly. That, 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 that so much of what is required for our responsibility, right, is that calm and center. And it really begins with our ability to grant that to ourselves. Now, we know as high performers, we know, oh, yeah, 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 I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. There's, 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 there's an article that came out, um, I, I think this month's Atlantic, and it's got such a great title, Earl, I just forwarded it to you. Right. A culture of enforced positivity is holding back workplaces, right? Mm-hmm. And I call this happy wallpaper, Right. And the reason I call it happy wallpaper is that 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 everyone's putting on the face, because if we are high performers, then we almost have an allergy to what is not, you know, um, serendipity. Right. What is not great going on in our lives. But actually, that's what people are carrying in with themselves every moment that they walk in the door is what is really going on all over the place. So so what happens when you bring this up, right? People go, oh, but if we make room for all that, that's all that we'll ever you know, talk about because there's just so much going on, whether it's Black Lives Matter, hashtag Me Too, whether it's um, how people felt about the storming of you know the Capitol, how, how people are dealing with COVID, how people are dealing with... Um, their fears about environmental change, economic instability, the war in Ukraine. Like the, it's just the contextual sources of grief and sadness are so huge. And then you add on to it a sense of personal life. And what I love about this piece that um, showed up in the Atlantic and what really a lot of best practice um, kind of thinkers and thought leaders are saying about grief is that Actually, if you make a little space for it to exist in your life, for your own processing, for your own diving in and being present with all the, all the creepy crawlies that all of us have under our rocks of our life, our, our touchstones of our life, for us to make a little time for those creepy crawlies to actually exist is going to widen our capacity to hold space for that to exist amongst our employees. And then they won't be stuffing their feelings. They will trust us more. They will trust each other more. Like they will feel like it's safe to actually exist as a full human being. So this, this urge towards the great resignation, et cetera, won't be as felt because they'll feel like it's okay for them to exist as a human being. So back to your question, what I was doing in January was um, I was both celebrating that I had been in business for 20 years, which um, hallelujah, praise Congratulations. everybody, right? Because yeah, anyone stuff. who's ever started a company knows that, that the first couple of years, it's just like, oh God, if I just make it to the next year. Um, so, so a lot of it was really taking stock and giving myself a mini sabbatical, um, to appreciate what that journey has been, et cetera. But obviously coming on the tail end of this home invasion and yes, they caught the guy and, you know, prosecuted and blah, blah, blah. Thank God. Um, but a lot of it was really thinking about, um, how these events that happen in our lives do impact um, are how we work and how we perform at work. And, um, that, 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 that even in my own client base, now Earl, you got to think about this, right? I mostly deal with CEOs, COOs and CHROs. Like that's, that's who I'm working with. And the breadth of clients I have that never asked me if I was okay. Mm. Like, they knew it happened. 
they never picked up the phone to say, hey, um, I was just thinking about that. It's been a couple of weeks. I'm thinking about you. Um, hope you're okay. I'm sending you a hug, right? Whatever, right? Um, the number of clients who did not take a moment to do that actually outweighs the number of clients who did. Yeah. yeah. Now, if they're not doing that to me and I'm their empathy expert who they are paying to come in and train their CEOs and presidents of companies on modeling these behaviors to their employees. What does that really tell us about the fact that we're paying lip service to a fundamental human need to exist in all of our complexity and a reticence of fear of actually doing it ourselves? Yeah. No, you, you hit on uh, a lot there and, you know, a lot of great points. I mean, you know, first of all, that that kind of, um, you know, dealing with the fear uh, piece, it kind of reminded me of uh, in Stephen Pressfield's uh, kind of historical fiction uh, about the Battle of Thermopylae. Um, he he lead, does a whole kind of lead up to that battle, talking about Spartan culture, Spartan tradition, Spartan history. But he talks about this thing, and it was a term he created for the book, but it's called phobologia, uh, which was basically the logic of dealing with fear. Uh, and, you know, that was one of the things that made Spartans brave was they dealt with fear, right? It wasn't an absence of fear. It was knowing how to deal with it. Um, and so I see a lot of value there. But again, that last piece, you know, you know I'm, I'm sorry that, that that worked out that way because, you know, you're right, is if they're, if they're not going to take the time to do that with you, they're definitely not going to take the time. Okay, I'm not going to say definitely. They're 99.9% not going to take the time to do that with their staff. And that's the thing where I really wish, and I've mentioned it before on this show, is I really wish leaders could wrap their minds around the idea that it doesn't just matter what happens, you know, the 8, 10, 12 hours a day, you're inside the four walls of the of the business. How you treat that person at work is going to carry over into their home life. And then how that home life is impacted by how you treated them at work is going to impact how they come back to work the next day. And that's going to impact how you treat them. And, you know, it's this whole circular, this empathetic circular firing squad if you're not doing it right, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, so you called it phobologia. I think that's such a gorgeous phrase. And I think it's wonderful to um, invent words. I think that, <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that, that that's part of the creative process. And that's actually how um, conversation and language evolves is, is by us saying, how can I really express that in a way that's, that's, that's accurate? Because I've long quoted um, in the leadership talks and the coaching I do with senior executives that this, this idea of courage, people think it comes from your head or being savvy in how you think. No, the word courage comes from the root core, right? The French or the Spanish core, right? Heart. Mm -hmm. Courage comes from the heart and courage can only exist if fear is present. If fear is not present, I'm here to tell you it ain't courage. It's business as usual. Well, right. Yes. And, and, and fear again, that's the one thing that, you know, um, and what I love about it is, is a lot of military folks that have actually been in and done some stuff aren't uh, afraid to admit that fear exists. You know, I've heard Tim Kennedy, I've heard Jocko Willink, I've heard, you know, these, these Navy SEALs and special forces guys who are making a ton of money selling all everything under the sun. You know, they've said, if you're not afraid when the bullets start flying, that's not bravery. You're some type of psychopath. Something's wrong with you. Yeah. You know, yeah. fear creates healthy boundaries, but courage is what helps you realize this is as bad as it can be. It's not going to be that bad. Let's keep moving. Well, think about it too, Earl. Like, and I, I love that you draw from the battle um, analogies and stories, because even if you're just a sports fan and you've never cracked any military history or history, like in your life, what makes us fall in love with players is what they've gone through. 
Right. Right. It's always what their journey has been, right? I um, sat down with a bunch of the fighters in the BKFC, right? Uh, the Bare Knuckle Fighting Club. Right. Right. Like these are like the bad, well, it's not fair to say bad boys because they're men and women, but these are like the rebel renegades of um, bout competition right like these yeah. are like these yeah. folks have no equipment right people die right? right and um when i sat down with them the conversations that really came to life were the ones that talked about what they had to overcome to even show up in that ring and i'm talking drug abuse physical you name it right horrible horrible um upbringings right etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's always think of any movie you've ever seen from Pretty Woman to Bagger Vance to Star Wars. It's always about how do we rise above? And if you're not rising above fear, then you are not really rising above anything. Yeah, it's a, it's the hero's journey, right? We, we 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 never really pull for the person who's had everything nice and easy and the silver spoon in their mouth and all that. You know, you said we we gravitate towards the person that's struggling and. Uh, you know, I'm I'm curious what your uh, take is on this, but for me, it's it's because you know that is the most relatable person. We, we are all that person. We've all struggled with stuff, right? Well, and what what I think is the beautiful part to remember is that even if things have been given to you, if you were born into a wealthy family and never had to worry about access to resources, chances are your hero's journey. In some other way, yeah, okay. yeah. Like n- no one here. I always love to quote um, <laughs> rock and roll stars. No one here gets out alive. Like everyone comes into this life having to navigate something. And I think that that um, because leaders groom themselves to um, to wear a mask, right? right. To right. To look brave, to say I've got it all figured out, to have all the answers, etc. It, it it because it's simply not possible for any one human being um, to have all the answers. It's funny. Um, Forbes um, asked me for a quote on this, like what is the biggest Achilles heel for leaders through uncertainty? And I said, easy, pretending to have all the answers because yes. everyone knows it is humanly impossible. To have all the answers and point one point two um if you're gonna have that posture then i'm gonna call bullshit and i'm not gonna trust you point two point three i'm certainly not gonna trust you with my truth because yeah. if you're gonna stand in front of me and lie to me and expect me to play along then that that means i'm never gonna be safe around you so how can i really engage how can i really care how can i really show up yeah no i, I love that perspective and and it's you know i say on here all the time leadership is just uh, another relationship and you know I, I say the the three most important words in a personal relationship or i love you uh, the three most important words in a leadership relationship is I don't know. Yeah. You know, if, if you that. can admit, I don't know, uh, pe- people are going to, like you just said, they think that we as leaders have to have all the answers. We have to be perfect. We can never stumble. And that's just not the way life is. It, it's, it's disingenuous to try to be perfect, to put on that shiny, pearly veneer uh, for everybody, right? Well, it- and so back to me, right? Because of course it's all about me. <laughs> but like, had I had I pretended everything was okay, um, and not been transparent, I would have done a couple things. One, I would have really created a violence against myself, not standing in my truth. Point one, point two, I would have. Um, created a wall because they would have been able to feel in my presence that wow some's not she's a little edgy right yeah she's her um her sentences seem shorter like like our spidey sense always picks up on when things aren't okay and so that would have served to erode trust but here's also the funny thing is when i say i don't know as a leader it opens the door for contribution. 
It yes. opens the door for collective problem solving. It opens the door for brainstorming, for ideation. And no matter how smart we think we are, if you're really opening the door for people to serve up their best ideas, you're going to get stuff you would have never thought of. And maybe 90% of it is total garbage. And you're like, oh my God, I can't believe they actually said that. But you better not, you better not roll your eyes and you better not carry the energy that is dismissive because for every go nowhere idea that go nowhere idea might exactly be the idea that had to be expressed for the hitting the nail on the head idea that really brings it home and helps you arrive at what you needed so so it, it's just it, it's it's really like if there's one thing that i can implore anyone who is listening to this to take some time to do is to really ask themselves, how much have I given myself space to even acknowledge how I am doing? Yeah. Yeah. Because, because if you're not doing that for yourself, I guarantee you that your people can feel it and they are sure as hell not going to tell you how they're doing. Yeah. No, it's, that is a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, um, you know, I go back to, uh, Two conversations actually that I had with uh, uh, Chief Jason Armstrong. He was uh, the chief poli- chief of police for uh, Ferguson, Missouri, for a while. He's moved someplace uh, closer to home, back on the East Coast now. But through that, you know, things we're talking about here. There were uh, he shared a story about how at the height of the pandemic, uh, a lot of African Americans were uh, hesitant to wear face masks, especially in public, because he said, you know we see everything play out in the news. How comfortable do you think uh, your average black person is putting a mask on, going into a gas station and not have somebody think they're there to rob the place. Uh, But the other thing he said is, is we got to talking a little bit about uh, officer involved shootings. And uh, you know, he mentioned that when he was, uh, I want to say he was deputy chief of police, uh, a small town outside of Atlanta. Uh, The name just popped out of my head right now, but they had a couple of police officers that, that got shot. And he said that they, you know, they sent out the standard, you know, we'll have the chaplain available. We have, you know, the uh, employee resources uh, hotlines that you can call. Uh, He said, but something just told me, he says, you've got to respond to this. And so he shoots out an email response to everybody, you know, saying, hey, I just booked my time with the chaplain. Setting that example. Right. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the thing leaders really have to like, it's nice to make these things available, but you have to also model the behavior that you're not going to get ridiculed if you take advantage of them, because we don't give mental health the proper, and I like the term you use space. uh, We don't give it the proper space in the workplaces right now. Well, yeah, it's, um, it's really anathema to a lot of the command and control um, assumptions around what it is to go to work every day. I mean, yes, it'd be great if everyone was an automaton and didn't have any feelings, but that last I checked, um, unless we're shoving our feelings and repressing them, which of course is gonna bite us all um, eventually anyway, I, it's just not possible. There was, um, there was uh, a very highly respected investment banker in London like mid forties, top of his game. Everyone knew him globally, like in that space. His name is David Riddell. Okay. And one morning he killed himself. Right. Right. Happily married. Right. Everything's fine. Um, same thing. Um, a friend of mine works in a, a smaller pr- uh, private equity firm. One morning, one of their top, um, like senior associates. Right. This guy was like early thirties. Um, kiss his girlfriend goodbye in his high rise, had his gym bag over his shoulder. Instead of hitting the down button to go to the gym, he hit the up button. He went to the top of the 26th floor and threw himself over. Mm. Right. And, and the reason I'm bringing all of this up is that, that for one thing, what level of pretending and lack of space for the wholeness of who we are leads us to the conclusion that that is our only option. That is our only way 
to navigate this lifetime is to end it, right? What what assumptions, what what constrictions lead us to that conclusion? And you can say, oh, well, those people are mentally ill. And I'm like, well, they're high performers. Right. Right. And so there's that. But then there's also this other piece. What about all those people who went to work that day and had to see the marshals walk in to give the news to the organization and then the CEO calls the mother, you know, all of that stuff. Like what, what, how, how do organizations step forward in the face of tragedy to, to make space for people to have emotions, right? We went through it with nine 11. Um, Those of us who were part of the workforce at that point, do I go to work today, right? Do I go home? What do we do? Well, and I think that's a valuable point that you're making there because, like, when we have something majorly tragic like that, like September 11th, like I remember when, uh, you know, the, the, the well, both uh, space shuttle explosions, uh, when we have something that is a national stage that is, is, is huge and obvious, we kind of know what to do. But yeah. I think I think part of it is is really coming to grips with tragedy means more than September 11th. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And um, you're right. A lot of organizations and leaders know how to rally under triage. Right. Um, they know how to do that. The question is, how are they at the long game? of preventative because mental well-being is a practice it is not a one-off thing it is not you know something that you're just born with and so it's always there for you like like it is something that takes attention and cultivation of just like our physical health our mental health does too and um a lot of companies know how to rally under duress and i will say not all of them either because a lot of companies just want to say okay yeah there's a war it got declared today um let's go to our staff meeting right Right. (laughs) but um but but the long game of how do we um as you said earl model attention to mental well-being on an ongoing basis and then also create space where people feel like it's okay for them to have that need as well. It's just, you can open up your HBR, you can open up your Forbes magazine, you can open up a local USA Today, you can open up your local paper. Um, Everywhere you look, this mental health crisis is really taking its toll on how people are able to perform and even if they want to perform, which is the crux of what we do as a business. Yeah. And again, extremely valuable points. And and the one thing that that I know you like talking about is, is, you know, talking about business uh, in terms of, of games. And I can't remember if we talked about this last time or not, but uh uh, you're familiar with the the concept of finite and infinite games, right? right. Yep. Yeah. And, and so that's what I, I see going on a lot of times is, you know, like even in this article, they talk about, you know, we should have mental health days instead of sick days. And, and I agree with that, but it's got to be more than that. Like what you said, you can't just read the articles. you got to, you really have to always be asking yourself and okay, we created mental health days and we're going to, you know, provide mental health, uh, you know, professionals and we're going to do this because, you know, the, the, the problem that a lot of folks get into and, and I see this coming, you mentioned sports earlier, you know, so this, this thing that the NFL is getting praised for, uh, for requiring teams to have, uh, I can't remember the exact way they worded it, but essentially a minority uh, underrepresented coach at a key part of their coaching staff. You know, I'm happy they take that step, but my fear is that that that's a finite game approach, right? You're going to do that. You're going to get one person there and everybody's going to say, well, we got the one person and then nobody else is going to get hired. 
I want you to play the infinite game. I want you to see how, not we have to hire one. How many can we hire? How many qualified people out there can we have to where it doesn't become such an oddity that we think about mental health, that, that we make space for mental health, or that we hire underrepresented populations in our companies? Oh, well, That's the infinite, infinite game. You're, you're just open up a, a can of worms there, though, because, of course, if you are the historically represented um, demographic, right, you hear that and you're like, well, what happens to my choices? What happens to my chances? Right. Yeah. And so so it's this real, I think, a crux moment for us as a country um, for us as a human race, as a human species, um, to really look at how do we navigate both the actions needed and the inevitable reactions that will be almost a, um, what's the word I'm looking for, Earl, that, that where you try to make a change and the change just comes back and boomerangs you right in the head. Right. Yeah. That it just reinforces fear and distrust and and judgment. And and I, I think when you bring up the DEI thing, I mean, some some companies have a serious commitment to neural diversity, i.e. knowing that people have neurological kind of differences, whether they're spectrum or whether um, they've got um, a sociological, um, condition and it's kind of a scary moment, I think for, um, for folks who watch all this happening and go, well, it's just all so messy, right? It's just all so hard to manage. Like, like if everyone is showing up this way, then how do we get work done? And what what studies are really showing is that everyone was always all these things already. They just weren't um, safe to express them or to show up transparently. So we oftentimes didn't know that, oh, so-and-so's out sometimes because they have narcolepsy, right? Or... Right, right. Um, so-and-so, um, doesn't like to fly on airplanes, so they've got to have a local sales role instead of a national, right? Like all these things that, that are real, that does not mean that those people cannot contribute to the organization, but, but that say that we need to understand who they are. So we can't, but you're right about the mental health day thing. It's more than saying, oh, take a mental health day. It's more saying, I trust you to take a day when you need it because you're an adult. And if it starts to look like it's a lot, I'm going to talk to you about it. Um, but but it's almost like just trusting people that 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 they're going to they're going to do their best no matter what, because that's kind of our nature. Yeah, it is to show up and do our best. Well, a hundred percent. And, and, you know, you hit on a lot of good stuff there. And that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, uh, one of the shields of the leadership phalanx is build relationships and look out for your people, um, is everything we've been talking about here. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just amazing, uh, how, how this works. And, and we were talking about, again, DNI and, you know, how do I know, how do we know that this is, is true? What Tevin and I've been talking about here. I can't tell you how many organizations, I'm sure you've ran into them, where somewhere in the past they identify, you know, hey, we're 90% white male and 10% other, right? Well, first of yeah. all, saying it, we're 90% white male and 10% other is its own problem in the terminology. Yeah. Uh, but then they say, well, okay, so we want to increase our recruitment by, you know, let's say we want to recruit 50% more women. So they do it. But because they only focus on that piece, they don't put all of these programs and support systems in place. And then they're bringing in 50% more, but they're also turning over 80% higher rate females. Yeah. So they're not actually fixing anything other than this yeah. one weird metric they decided to focus on. Yeah. You, you got to fix the system, right? Yeah. And by doing that, a lot of times because the systems aren't in place to acknowledge that 
a lot of women are the primary caregivers or they are the only caregivers to children or to other family members that um, that they are juggling a whole lot. Um, statistically, that a lot of times guys are not, right? And right. so how are they judged? How are they penalized as opposed to being praised as really holding down the social fabric um, that makes our society work. So, yeah, it, 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 um, Earl, I think if you and I had a magic wand, we would just go ding, 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 and fix all these things. But but fixing them really begins with acknowledging that they do yes. exist um, and that it's only through increased transparency and understanding that 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 we can even start to arrive at solutions and what is fascinating to me is even some of the most admired organizations so struggle with even having the conversation yeah no you're 100 percent right uh you know perfect example you mentioned the uh you, you know you mentioned the the issues that women face one thing that i've ran into and this was a gentleman i worked with he wanted to take uh, paternity leave to be there for the whole three months to support his wife and, and kid and hold on yards. And, and you talk about the conversation, like folks looked at him, like, you know, he had asked for, you know, the world. And it's like, I want to be there. I want to be, you know, support. And nobody was willing to necessarily have that conversation with him or find out why they just made some assumptions about his intent to be gone for three months. And it was like, yep. We got to have the conversation. We got to be willing to talk about it and, and not shut these things down because they are extremely important conversations to have. They're uncomfortable, yeah. Yeah. you know, but they're, they're necessary. Yeah. Well, I think that a really great way um, for companies to start to um, make it safe to have the hard conversations and not only do it behind closed doors with HR, because I'm going to be honest with you. No one trusts HR, so it doesn't count. It's, right. Right. It's got to be done like like leadership. The C-suite has got to stop outsourcing the task of humanity at work Love it. to someone with HR like in their title. Stop it, guys. If yeah. you are not modeling being fully human, then it is not happening in the organization. Okay, point one. Point two, um, one of the great ways to really start to do this is to use these moments all of us are going through, whether it's a Me Too, a Black Lives Matter, um, a global warming uh, conversation, the polarization politically, um, whether it's um, the Ukraine, um, all of that, right? One of the most powerful things you can do, and the trust studies by McKinsey, by Edelman, by all the you know smarty pants, you know, companies on the planet say you have to do this, you have to start to foster transparent conversations and not have some nice lady like me be accountable for making this happen amongst your really junior people. That's that's laughable and it's an insult and it degrades the gravitas of of humanity at work. You've got to actually be there in the conversation. And you have to participate and you have to share your POV or your fears or your struggles or some experience you had from your life. Because when you do that, now you're getting a little bit closer to, to walking the talk. You're actually starting to talk from the heart about something most companies are nodding their heads at, but not taking it any further. So, so use these difficult moments to foster open conversation. It doesn't have to take more than half an hour a month. And if you can't spare that so that the people that walk through your door and make you money every day feel like they exist as human beings, then I don't know what kind of leader you are, honestly. Yeah. No, well said. Well said. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's the old, um, you know, there's that old kind of story, if you will. It's not really a quote. It says, uh, you know, what happens if we train our people and they leave? And then the person responds, what happens if we don't train them and they stay? Yeah. You know, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, you know, with, with this level, yes, you have to make the time. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, sure, if you're at the super top of a Fortune 500 global conglomerate, maybe you can't reach out to all 2,000 people. But, you know, that that's where, like with the military, uh, you know, we, we relied on what we called small unit leadership. So it was, you know, the, the platoon leaders led the platoon, uh, or excuse me, the squad leaders led the squad, the platoon leaders led the platoon, uh, the company leaders led the company, but they were all in touch in some way, even by proxy, all the time. Yeah. Uh, well, there, yeah. There's ways you can do it. Yeah. It, it's kind of like the police chief who wrote, you know, the email saying, yeah. I made yeah. an appointment with a chaplain. Like, well, uh, so he or she does that and sets the tone. And then each... Um, segment downwards should be working to to foster these conversations so that it, it's felt right it's real people a lot of times ask us right they'll they'll be like so so how do you do this how do you really talk about this stuff and not just have a big group therapy cry fest and what's amazing is so many really smart people have come up with fabulous models and fabulous conversational tools to make it safe for people to feel like they can be human at work. And, and, and so to just assume that it's one or the other, right? It's gonna be an emotionless, but we put this in our mission statement that people are our most valuable asset, right? As long as they don't have any feelings, right? An emotionless workplace or an emotional mess of a workplace to assume that those are really the options you're 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 making an assumption that actually is going to doom your organization to fail because neither are a recipe for thriving yep no a hundred percent hundred percent uh tevis can you believe it we've we've been chatting here for another 45 minutes and it has just flown by we got to take these people on retreat or something, Earl, because I just have a feeling we could. <laughs> yeah. I, hey, I'm with you. I, I'm with you. I think this would be great. Let's take uh, them to the woods, right? We'll take them to the go. woods. Yeah. yeah. Who, who doesn't need some Gatlinburg therapy, right? Oh, my God. I do. <laughs> there you go. Well, I, I'm curious, you know, with this one, um, is there anything, you know, because we, we, we hit on a lot of great topics here, and, and I love where you took the conversation. I really appreciate you kind of modeling that and opening up with the authenticity and the transparency and sharing, you know, your stories and what should have, you know, what was undoubtedly a, a, a kind of a traumatic experience uh, for you. But is there anything that, that you didn't get a chance to touch on that you want to leave listeners with before we close out this conversation? Do you know, um, the fact that you're listening to Earl's podcast and maybe there are others you keep in your rotation says a lot about what you care about, right? And I want to encourage everyone who listens to whatever it is that you've got on the rotation. When you hit pause or you go on back to your life or, you know, it's time to sit down for dinner or you've arrived at home from your commute or something, think of something that really stuck with you that you're going to act on. It could be anything Earl said, I said. It could be something neither of us said that just came up from your own well of wisdom. But I'm going to invite you. In fact, I want to challenge you to challenge yourself to take action on it. Don't, don't let all these brilliant ideas that you have come up in your heart and in your mind evaporate into the mist, right? Make them real. Make them a part of your life. And in doing that, you will make yourself a better leader. Mm, that is solid, solid advice. Uh, so, Tevis, uh, I want to give you the opportunity again to kind of uh, point people in the right direction. They want to find out more about you. They want to get a copy of your books. They want to the plug. You want yes, the plug? I okay, want guys. The plug. I'm, I'm gonna plug you. Okay, <laughs> I've got um, eight essential um, happiness habits that that if you would like it, I'm gonna send Earl the link and you can click on it. Um, I asked for your email address. It does add you to my mailing list, but um, as anyone will tell you, I probably email about twice a month and I only email when there is something significant to share. Like I don't just do it to say, hey, 
uh, buy my book for the fifth time. But <laughs> if you do want to buy my book for the first time, it's Barnes and Noble. It's on Amazon. It's the Game Changers Guide to Radical Success and Forbes Magazine. I don't know what act in heaven happened for this to happen, but um, Forbes Mag Forbes Magazine called it one of the top books in compassionate leadership. And I think the reason they felt that way is it's a really powerful way to connect more authentically with yourself so that you can be the game-changing leader that you probably long to be. I love it. And I highly recommend you all do that and go grab a copy of the book. It's uh, it's very well put together. You've heard Tevis talk today. Go back to episode 134. I have that linked in the show notes as well as, as all the other links that, uh, uh, that we've talked about through this show. Uh, but go back to 134 and listen. We talk about the book a little bit more in depth in that one. Uh, but Tevis, I just want to say thank you for being an outstanding uh, return guest. You you really touched on a lot of great topics today, and I know the listeners took a lot of value. So thank you for spending this last, you know, 45, 50 minutes with us today. I really appreciate having you as a guest on the Responsible Leadership Podcast. It's such an honor, Earl. Thank you. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening, and if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, the Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one -on -one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the Interviews. Electric Acid. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.